The reading today is from Mark 15, verse 33. Mark 15, verse 33 to 41. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. This is God's word. Good morning, church. Well, Ruby, thank you very much indeed. My uh, Bible software this morning told me that uh, today is the birth date of a man called Mordecai Ham. And uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Mordecai Ham was the preacher under whom Billy Graham was converted, uh, well, probably over a hundred years ago now. And um, it's just a remarkable thing, isn't it, that on Good Friday, when we're thinking about the cross of the Lord Jesus, that uh, we're remembering the ministry also of a man who converted Billy Graham under God, and Billy Graham then spent 75 years preaching the cross of Christ. That's a rather wonderful thing, isn't it? Anyway, we're delighted you're all here this morning. Um, after the service, we have uh, two things for you. We've got some hot cross buns, and we've also got uh, some pickled fish for you, and that will all be served out there. The pickled fish is not to eat here, it's to take away, and it's all carefully pre-packed for you. So won't you now please have your Bible open at the passage that Ruby read so beautifully for us. And uh, as we begin, I'm going to pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the tremendous privilege of meeting in freedom as your children this morning. And we do remember those who can't do that. Uh, So, Lord, we pray that we would treasure these moments around your word. We pray that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. And what we are not, you would make us. And we ask these things for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. Well, someone has said that there is tragedy and sadness in life, 
from which no amount of celebration or rejoicing can provide a full escape. The happiest times are tinged with sadness. And then he goes on to say, but with the knowledge of God's promises, even the saddest times can be tinged with happiness. Now that, I think, is the key to today, isn't it? We're thinking about an event which changes and colours all the griefs and sadnesses of our lives so that they're never the same again. You know, if we think that we can have um, happiness without sadness, we'll quickly be disillusioned, won't we? But we're also going to be very deeply discouraged if we face our sadnesses without the promise of Christ. Now, I've no idea what circumstances you're dealing with this morning, but the nine verses in front of us, Mark 15, 33 to 41, give us a promise which I believe will in some way colour your life and your situation with gratitude and with happiness. So I've got just two headings for us this morning. The first is the message of Good Friday and judgment and the second is the message of Good Friday and mercy. Now in our series, I think you'll all agree, we've discovered that Mark is an extremely skillful writer and that is certainly the case in the passage before us. So, under the heading the message of Good Friday and judgment Something is seen, darkness. Something is heard, a cry from the cross. And there's a very peculiar response. And then under the heading, the message of Good Friday and mercy, something is seen, a torn curtain. Something is heard, a profession of faith by a soldier. And there's a marvellous response. So, let's think first then about the message of Good Friday and judgment. Now in verse 33 we're told that at the sixth hour darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. So just imagine that after the service today at midday Cape Town goes dark. Like it's the middle of the night. Now the crucifixion took place, we know, we're told, during the Jewish Passover, which was the time of the full moon. So there's no way this could have been a solar eclipse. It's something else. And this unnatural darkness is recorded in Matthew, Mark and Luke. Mark says the darkness came down over the whole land. That's what it says in verse 33. So it's not just the immediate area around the cross. It's the whole land of Judea. And it's as if God is saying to his people, pay attention, something highly significant is taking place. And I think you'll miss the point of the darkness if you say to yourself, well, I'm sure there's a natural explanation. Because you see, throughout the Bible, darkness is a symbol of God's judgment. 
So think of the plagues in uh, the book of Exodus. One of those plagues was the, the darkness that came over the whole land of Egypt as a sign of God's anger against Pharaoh. Or think of the many places in the prophets in the Old Testament who spoke about the judgment of God coming in the form of darkness. And uh, back in Mark chapter 13, which I apologise for skipping over, Jesus himself said that on the day of judgment, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, Mark 13, 24. So this unnatural darkness in our passage is an unmistakable sign of the judgment of Almighty God. In the Bible, God is described as light, so if he shines his face to you, towards you, that's a sign of his favour, but if he turns his face away from you, you're in darkness. And here the darkness is a sign that what was happening on the cross was far more than mere physical death. It involved the terrible reality that someone was taking the judgment sin deserved. The penalty which Jesus did not deserve he took fell on him and that's why of course in the garden he'd been so terrified of the crucifixion he knew precisely what was coming. Notice will you that this sign was for everybody. Every soldier could see it. Every religious leader, every person walking past, every disciple, everyone saw the darkness. And they would all have said, this is unusual, this is memorable, this is significant and it's scary. Pay very, very careful attention, says God, to what happens today. And then at the ninth hour, which is 3pm, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know whether you know this. This is the only time in Mark's Gospel where Jesus calls God, God. All the other times he calls him Father. Jesus here speaks just four words in Aramaic but there's an ocean of meaning in them. Some of you know, I'm sure, that this is the way that Psalm 22 begins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that psalm begins on a note of abandonment and it ends on a note of tremendous victory. But but I don't want you to think that on the cross that Jesus was simply rehearsing his memory verses. Jesus was actually experiencing what Psalm 22 predicted. He was living out that desperate forsakenness in a way that no one ever has before or since. And he wasn't just feeling separated from God. Lots of people feel distant from God. I have at times, I'm sure you have too. But that's not what we're talking about here. Here, Jesus experiences the reality of being utterly 
abandoned by God. And that's, you see, because sin brings separation. How do we know that? Well, Isaiah 59 begins with these words. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And here is Jesus being treated as sin. He's got our sin on his shoulders and as a result he is separated from the Father. Elsewhere the Bible says that on the cross Jesus became sin for us and that the Father treated him as sin and separated him. Now that, by the way, doesn't mean that the Trinity suddenly collapsed, but the separation from God, which is the price of sin, caused Jesus to be cut off. Now, how do we understand this? How can we explain it? John Stott puts it like this. He says, An actual and dreadful separation took place between the Father and the Son. And the evangelist John Chapman summarises the full weight of God's righteous anger against sin was allowed to fall on Jesus and he underwent our hell for us so that we could be with him in heaven. Now, in the last 12 months, I guess all of us have tasted in a very small way something of hell in the pandemic. But it seems to me that most discussions about hell today are missing two things. First, most people don't think hell is real. Does anybody know for sure? The New Testament answer is, yes, it is real. And Jesus knows for sure. The other thing I think that is missing is whether to warn someone about hell is to love them. And again, I think the New Testament answer to that question is, yes, it very definitely is. And the point I'm making is that on this day when Jesus died... The reality of sin and separation from God was seen and it was heard. And Jesus took it in order to protect you and I from it. Now, I think we should perhaps pause for just a moment here and ask whether we need forgiveness. Uh, I've met plenty of people recently who say to me, Simon, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm not a sinner. Well, consider this. One writer says that if we sin just once a day, uh, one word, one wrong word, one thought, one action, one sin a day, that would be 20,000 sins over 50 years. The writer who calculated that goes on to say if we sin once an hour, 
in thought or word or deed, that's 400,000 sins in 50 years. But since not even one minute goes by, when we actually do love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, our actual sin count over 50 years is 26 million. 26 million sins in one human lifetime. So, as the father looks at the son who's chosen to carry the sins of others to this place of punishment and appalling separation from God, he looks on his son and he sees what you've done and what I've done and what everyone's done. He sees someone who's rebelled against God and defied God and disobeyed God and walked away from God. He sees someone who's told lies, who's stolen, who's bribed, who's cheated, who's blasphemed, who's been envious and disobedient, who's dishonoured their parents, who's wounded their children, who's held grudges and dealt in terror and drugs and murder and rape and every evil you can possibly think of because it's all been piled on Christ. That's why the hymn says that we're going to sing a little bit later, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Now the next thing to notice in our passage is the extraordinary response. We considered the sight of the unnatural darkness and we considered the sound, what was heard, the words of Jesus. And in verses 35 and 36 there is a very strange response. Because some of the people standing right next to the cross haven't got the first clue what's going on. They think Jesus is calling out to Elijah the prophet and that's because of a tradition in Judaism that at the end of your life Elijah would help you to cross the river of death. But these people have got no clue about what's really happening. And uh, instead they come up and they offer Jesus a drink. Now I'm sure you've got this clear that Listening is one of the huge themes in the Gospel of Mark. Do you remember back in chapter 4, Jesus taught that the message goes out like a seed and you're either a hard path, nothing goes in, or you're soft but shallow soil and you're excited for about half an hour, or it goes in for a few weeks, months or years and then you give up, or... It goes in for good and for eternity. The point is that hearing the message is absolutely crucial. And I wonder whether these people around the cross who've obviously not listened, obviously not heard, I wonder whether they might be a warning to us that you can appear to be very close to the things of Christ and actually be a million miles away. 
See, these people think, you know, this poor chap up there, well, he's suffering, but that's all. Let's go and help him. Let's give him a drink. And I think there'll be plenty of people around this weekend, probably in church, who will say, yes, Jesus suffered, but, you know, I had a Christian education. My parents took me to church now and again. I'll try and help others when I can. That is to completely mishear that Jesus has taken the judgment and the darkness and the separation for our sin. And if we don't look to him and give him both our sin and ourselves, then the judgment, the darkness, the separation will fall on us. So perhaps you're a visitor today or maybe you're listening to this online and maybe you're thinking, yes, you know, I I know Jesus suffered. But I think that the Christian message is do your best and be a good person. I've actually heard somebody say that in the last week. My friend, if that is you, please know that the Christian message is exactly the opposite. The message of Christianity is stop trying. Go to Christ, collect forgiveness and new life because we need it and he died to give it. Why go on with God's judgment hanging over you when Jesus took it for you? So that's the first thing this morning. Good Friday and judgment. The second thing is Good Friday and mercy and we're looking here at verses 36 to 41. Verse 37 says, With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. He expired. He died. Now, we've just seen, haven't we, that there were two proofs of God's judgment. Darkness and the forsaken sun. And now here, in this section, there are two proofs of God's mercy. The curtain is split from top to bottom and a soldier believes The Jewish temple had two curtains. One prevented you from going into the main area and the other prevented anybody from going into the Holy of Holies except the high priest who went went in once a year with a sacrifice for the nation. The curtain that's being described here is the curtain at the entrance to the Holy of Holies which signified the presence of God. And this curtain was a visible sign, a symbol of separation. It was like a massive sign uh, saying, keep out, God is holy, you're not. He's light, you're darkness. And you can't approach God any more than you can approach the sun in the sky on a hot day. Because sin separates And this curtain was a symbol or a reminder of that. And here, as Jesus dies and calls out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Suddenly, the curtain in the temple splits in two from top to bottom. Why does the curtain split in two from top to bottom? 
because this whole problem of separation has just been solved by Jesus. He's been separated. You don't need to be separated. And Mark says that the curtain splits from top to bottom so that we understand clearly that it was God who did it. There wasn't a priest standing at the bottom of the curtain ripping it up from the bottom to the top. No, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. So you see, as Jesus dies, with our sins on his shoulders, the Father says to the Son, get out. And as the curtain in the temple splits in two, the Father says to the world, come in. The Father says to the Son, you're expelled. And the Father says to the world, you're invited. The Father says to the Son, exit. And the Father says to the world, entrance. Now you see, that's Good Friday. That's why the symbol of the cross, whether you see it on a building or on a Bible or on a gravestone, the cross is an open door into the family of God. And it's been opened by Jesus at his expense. And therefore, the person who owns up to their sin and goes on their knees and says to Jesus, please forgive me, please give me new life, finds themselves walking into the family of God. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they've done. They are totally accepted permanently by God. Now, you see, that's what the soldier does. Now, I'm not suggesting that the soldier knew anything about the curtain. I don't imagine the soldier cared two hoots about the curtain. Uh, He didn't run from the cross to the temple and say, well, what do you know, the curtain's been split down the middle. What a marvellous symbolic sign. No, he didn't know about the curtain. He didn't care about the curtain. He probably didn't even see it. Now, the point is that when the curtain split, a new age began. And now, in this new age, it's time for men and women to believe. And the soldier's confession is the proof that the curtain really has been opened. Because it's a wonderful conversion. You see, so far, everybody standing round the cross has been abusing Jesus, saying the most appalling, unkind things to him. But here is this soldier that never in a million years would you expect to have faith or interest or openness to Christ. But he looks at Jesus and as he dies on the cross, he says the first really wonderful thing. Truly, this man was the Son of God. He's the first true convert. He's actually, I don't know whether you know this, he's the first person in Mark's Gospel to refer to Jesus as the Son of God. Back in chapter 1, Mark, the author of the Gospel, said, I'm going to write about the Son of God. And at the baptism of Jesus, God the Father said, this is my son. 
And the demon said, we know who you are, the Son of God. But this is actually the first time that a human being has said, Jesus, you are the Son of God. It is a great conversion. And therefore, this this pagan soldier sees far more clearly than all the religious people who said Jesus was a teacher, prophet, nothing more. And you see, it's the work of Jesus that has made this possible. Because the tearing of the curtain has opened the way for anyone in the world to come into the presence of Almighty God. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden that there was a tree of, the tree of life? And uh, after their rebellion, Adam and Eve and all humanity thereafter were cut off from the tree of life. And you don't really find the tree of life again in the Bible until you get to the book of Revelation where it comes up again and the people of God have got unrestricted access to it. How did that happen? Well, the answer is that right in the very middle of the Bible there is a tree of death. The cross where Jesus died in order that the person who believes in him might again have unrestricted access to the tree of life. And the tree of life means that you can have access to Jesus today and you can walk with him every day. And when you get to the end of your life and you say farewell to the people around you, you won't say farewell to him and he won't say farewell to you because he'll walk with you down into the valley and out the other side and into glory. That's his promise. And you see this marvellous forgiveness that comes to you and me through the gospel spreads into all our other relationships. There's a book, some of you may have read it, called From Red Earth, about some of the appalling things that happened in Rwanda in the 1990s between the Hutu and the Tutsi. And you may remember that in the space of just a hundred days, uh, a million Tutsi were slaughtered by their Hutu neighbours. And uh, the writer says in this book that one Tutsi woman saw her husband and five of her children slaughtered by a teenage Hutu soldier. And eventually this young man was arrested and sent to prison for 17 years. And prison changed him. Prison does change people. Ask Andrew about that afterwards. And um, when he came out, he went straight to this woman's house. And uh, in those years, she had been reading the Gospels and she had come to understand the forgiveness offered by Christ. And so when this young man arrived at her front door and asked for forgiveness, she gave it to him. They embraced and basically they adopted one another. And they've been living together ever since, looking after one another. Now, who apart from Jesus Christ could do that? And the point is that this great mercy comes down to us because of Jesus. And then it spills over into all our other relationships with the people around us. And the Bible says that because the dividing wall 
between God and us has been split. It is possible for the dividing wall between us and other people to be split as well. I mean, our church family here this morning is proof of that, isn't it? Different people, different cultures, different backgrounds, different education, different struggles, but because of the mercy that we've received from Christ and his death, the dividing wall between us has been removed and we are a family. Now Mark has got just one more thing to say to us this morning in the last two verses which I'd like to uh, like you to look at with me. Verse 40. Some of the women were watching from a distance. Uh, these women have been following Jesus. We're going to see them again on Sunday morning at the empty tomb. But here they're just watching from a distance. And I wonder if they're a reminder to us that some people are slow to believe. Some people come very quickly, like the Roman soldier. They say, it's crystal clear to me now, Jesus is the Son of God, I'm putting my faith in him, that's it. But some people do come more slowly, and these women, they came more slowly. They stood at a distance and watched. But you see, they couldn't work out everything by watching. They'd actually need to turn up on Sunday morning and listen to the angel saying, Jesus died, he rose, and he's gone ahead of you. Even then, they weren't totally persuaded. But slowly, gradually, it dawned on them. And that's how it is for some people. They're listening, they're looking, they're thinking, they're waiting, but they're watching from a distance. They come slowly. I don't know, maybe that's you this morning. But I want to say to you that it's very, very difficult indeed to figure out Christianity just by looking. If you try and work out Christianity just by looking at me, or the building, or the congregation, or the band, or the liturgy, it's not going to help you very much. You're going to have to listen. Because listening is the key to understanding. And you're going to have to listen to what it says in the pages of the New Testament. And when you hear the message of the New Testament that Christ died on the cross in your place and he offers you at his expense a fresh start and he gives you a living hope of heaven in your heart. When you hear that and you say, yes, I do believe, well, a brand new forgiveness, a brand new life, a brand new eternity opens up for you. And I think these women in verses 40 and 41 are a reminder to us that yes, some people come slowly, but they do come eventually. And that, of course, is the great hope, isn't it, for so many people in church this morning. I hope that everybody here has either put their trust in Christ, like the soldier, or that, like the women, they're thinking carefully and want to know Christ. And to you, I just want to say that looking, only looking, isn't going to be helpful. But listening to the message 
in the pages of the New Testament will show you how you can have eternal life. And then you'll be able to say, this Jesus, this Son of God, he took my judgment and he gave me mercy. Now that won't necessarily remove all your sadnesses, but I guarantee you this, it will profoundly colour with happiness all your days on earth. Let's pray.